Welcome to the Gut Science Podcast. I'm your host, Colleen MacDonald. Today we'll get to the second half of our interview with Dr. David Wright, co-director of the Global Security Program here at the Union of Concerned Scientists. We'll also hear from our correspondent, Shreya Dervasila, about where all the scientists have gone in our Sidelining Science segment. I know we left you last week with a United States-North Korea policy cliffhanger. In the early 90s, there were concerns that we might be on the brink of war with North Korea. Enter Jimmy Carter. As a civilian, he goes to North Korea and meets with Kim Il-sung, who agrees to freeze their nuclear program. The Clinton administration starts negotiations. That leads to something called the Agreed Framework. North Korea agrees to shut down its nuclear reactor, have inspectors come in, and continue discussions with the U.S. That all sounded promising, but it didn't work out that way. So David, what happens next? So things actually, for a while, seem to be going quite well. By 1999, uh, North Korea had announced a moratorium on missile flight tests. Uh, you know, as I've, I've said, the one thing that's interesting about missile flight tests is they have to fly in the atmosphere, and so you can verify that they're not testing. So at that point, they had essentially uh, shut down their nuclear program and their missile program. Uh, in October of 2000, the Clinton administration sent Secretary of State Madeleine Albright over to visit Pyongyang. Kim Il-sung had died at that point, but his son, Kim Jong-il, was the head of the government at that point and seemed to have made a decision that the future of North Korea was going to lie with opening up to the outside world, that uh, they had really had uh, disastrous famines and failure of the economy during the 1990s, and he seemed to have sort of cast his lot with normalizing relations with the outside world. So it certainly looked at that point like things were going forward. The um, negotiators who I've talked to on the missile program said that they were pretty shocked when they sat down with their counterparts in North Korea uh, at how much they seemed willing to put on the table and to allow verification. So it seemed like there was a real willingness there to figure out how to solve this problem. And, you know, to some extent it makes sense because once North Korea had made the decision to try and open up to the world and get its economy back on track, which it seems to have done, the nuclear and missile program were not only barriers for that happening, but they were also two of the only really valuable things that North Korea had to, to offer the outside world. So uh, it actually, as a bargaining strategy, made a lot of sense. So as I say, as the Clinton term ended, it looked like we were on our way to solving this problem. And in fact, Bill Perry, who was former Secretary of Defense and was Bill Clinton's envoy at that point to North Korea, has told me that he thought uh, the expectation was at the time that within a few months this would be sorted out. Uh, and then at that point, the Clinton administration ran out, uh, the Bush administration came in, uh, and President Bush stopped the negotiations, uh, said that they were going to reassess uh, U.S. policy on North Korea, and basically didn't talk to the North Koreans for 18 months to two years. Uh, I think this was an indication that within the Bush administration there was really a split over what to do about North Korea. There were certainly a group of people, including uh, Secretary of State Colin Powell, who thought that we should continue engagement, we should pick right up where the Clinton administration left off. There was another very strong group within the administration who felt like uh, North Korea was evil, they were a failed state, that uh, the regime should collapse, and anything the United States would do at the negotiating table would simply be a way of propping up a, a failed state. And so 
what we saw during most of the Bush administration was that those two teams uh, seemed to be battling with each other and kept the administration from getting back to the negotiating table in a, in a serious way. So during the 2000s, uh, North Korea kept trying to get the United States back to the table. When that didn't happen, they threw the international inspectors out and pulled the fuel rods out and started reprocessing them. 2006, they started testing missiles again. Uh, so by the end of the Bush administration, we were sort of back to where we were in the early 90s, only with a, a North Korea that had more fissile material and was moving ahead with missiles. So once they started back on this path, successful negotiations ended. So there have been some attempts to negotiate that have fallen apart for various reasons. Uh, in some cases, they seem to have been uh, undercut by forces in the administration that didn't want to see them go forward. But one of, I think one of the biggest problems has been that the United States has uh, tended to put conditions on getting to the negotiating table. So they've said, uh, we want to get to the negotiating table with a precondition that we will talk about denuclearization. And the North Koreans have basically had the position that if we go to the negotiating table, we should talk about what is going to be on the table, but we're not going to go in with preconditions. And so there's been sort of a standoff. The North Koreans, in several cases, seem to have suggested they would do certain things that they then backed away from. And so it's very frustrating and difficult to know how to negotiate with them. And I think that was one of the reasons that the uh, Obama administration um, adopted this policy that it called strategic patience, which was basically, well, when they want to figure out how to be a, a good negotiating partner, we will be there for them. Well, that didn't happen. And so what we're seeing in the meantime is that North Korea has had you know, 16 or more years to basically move forward with its nuclear program and its missile program. Missile ranges are getting longer and they're thought to have enough fissile material now to make something in the order of 15 to 20 nuclear weapons. Now enter Kim Jong-un. Kim is a real enigma. As far as we can tell, he's rational. He's a Machiavellian. You know, he does, I think, some pretty horrible things, but he's certainly rational. And I think the, his ability to move forward their nuclear and missile program is an example of that. Uh, he is, I would have to say, something of a disappointment because from ages 6 to 14, something like that, he actually lived in Switzerland. He, he spent most of his youth in Switzerland. People who knew him at that point said he seemed to be well-adjusted, he loved basketball, he seemed to be sort of a typical kid. And the hope was that when he was sort of picked as the next head of North Korea, you know, he would have internalized some of that notion of what the outside world is like and really tried to open North Korea to the outside world. And, and we simply haven't seen that. And I think it's worth recognizing that he's, you know, he's only 33 years old at this point. He was 27 when he, when he took over. And he seemed very quickly to have gotten into the mindset of his main uh, interest was in staying in power and preserving the regime. Uh, and as a 27-year-old kid with a lot of much older military people uh, who had worked for his father and grandfather, you can imagine there was a lot of concern that they didn't take him seriously, that he was going to be ousted. Um, and so he really seems to have focused a lot of his energy on uh, staying in power. And part of that has seems to have been focused on making sure that the United States does not um, sort of interfere or try to overthrow him with a military takeover of some kind. So I find it curious that you say he's rational because 
I think many people think the exact opposite. Mm -hmm. Yeah, in fact, you know, there are several things that I think the press gets wrong and sort of repeats about him, and they've repeated it so many times over the past decade or so that people uh, believe it. You know, you can't be irrational and have stayed in power the way he has. You can be ruthless. You can kill your uncles. You can kill your half-brother. I don't see that as irrational as much as despicable. Uh, Similarly, if you look at the way that he's been able to um, keep control of the military and move forward the missile and uh, nuclear programs, uh, I think it's clear that he knows what he's doing and is actually carrying out what he wants to do, even though what he's trying to do, I would say, is not something we would, would think makes a lot of sense. And unfortunately, I think the United States, you know, there's reason why there's paranoia on his part. When the uh, Korean War ended, they were unable to come to a a sort of a final peace treaty. So there is no final peace treaty to the Korean War. The, The countries at this point are still technically still at war with one another. South Korea is an ally of the United States, and one of the things that they do every couple years is big joint exercises, and part of that includes amphibious landings, and they did a a big one of those in the last couple months of this year. And so from North Korea's point of view, you've got somebody here that they're still officially at war with who is practicing uh, invading a small country with their arch enemy, South Korea, And the U.S., as part of those, was actually flying uh, nuclear-capable bombers uh, over the country. So, you know, if you take somebody who's worried about his position and then you you start doing those kinds of things, you can imagine that he would look around and say, well, if I'm going to stay in power, I need something to keep that from happening. And the other thing that he has talked about is the lesson of the Iraq War, is that if you don't want to be invaded, uh, you should have nuclear weapons. Uh, he's looked at the case of uh, Ukraine the same way. Ukraine gave up its nuclear weapons after the Soviet Union fell apart, and you know Ukraine was invaded by the Soviet Union. Uh, and Libya agreed to get rid of its nuclear program, and eventually Gaddafi was overthrown. So I think there's a strong sense on his part that he wants to stay in power and that having nuclear capability is a way to help ensure that. Thought Science is brought to you by the Union of Concerned Scientists. For more information, go to ucsusa.org podcast. If you'd like to keep up with David's analysis and commentary on North Korea's activities, you can find him on the All Things Nuclear blog. Go to allthingsnuclear.org. The U.S. doesn't have a military solution. What options do we have? Well, that's right. I think all of the uh, recent administrations, and I think the Trump administration is no exception, have, have looked at the problem and have decided that there is not a good military solution. And that's for really two reasons. One is we don't really know where all the targets we'd want to hit are. Uh, North Korea is very good at tunneling, putting things underground. So it's not clear that if we attacked, we could even get rid of the facilities we want to. Uh, And the other problem is that uh, Seoul, the capital city of South Korea, is very close to the border with North Korea and, in fact, is within the range of conventional artillery. And North Korea has very large numbers of of artillery. So the concern is that if you tried a military attack, uh, it wouldn't solve the problem and it would lead to devastation of South Korea and potentially Japan. So I think people understand that. The idea that the Trump administration has been talking about uh, has been increasing sanctions. You know, I think that's a fine thing to try, but sanctions in themselves are, are not, they're not an end in themselves. They're really a way to increase pressure. 
And so it seems to me you have to ask what you're trying to do with that pressure. And I think, you know, like it or not, what that leads you to is a diplomatic solution of the kind that uh, was tried during the 1990s. There is reason to believe, I mean, you know, as recently as a week and a half ago, a North Korean official said that they were willing to sit down with the United States and talk about these things. We don't really know where that would lead. I mean, you never do with negotiations. But what I would like to see is for the Trump administration to offer negotiations, maybe to send uh, the Secretary of State to North Korea as a way of showing that we're serious about that and try to start negotiations with the condition that North Korea suspend development of its nuclear weapons and its missile program while those negotiations are going on. So that would have the advantage of, I mean, the, the argument some people make is, well, sure, they'd be happy to sit down and talk, but that would just be a stalling tactic. And so if they would freeze their development, both nuclear and missile development can be verified by the United States, uh, that would be a way of trying to see how willing they were to talk about things while trying to keep those programs from getting worse. I mean, nobody knows whether or not this is going to work, but I, I think if, like uh, his father, Kim Jong-un, decides that, A, he's not going to be overthrown by the United States, and B, his regime is going to be more stable if they can improve the economy and open to the outside world, then there is likely a motivation there. And our Chinese colleagues tell us that when they look at North Korea, they see themselves back in the 1970s. I mean, at that point, they were worried about threats from the outside world, they were developing uh, nuclear weapons, and they were being sanctioned by the outside world. And they said, you know, that didn't lead them to think that they should stop developing weapons, it led them to push ahead even farther. And the lesson of that is they see that what really led them to becoming a more normal country in the world was economic development and becoming a more you know, mature country. And they think the same thing is going to have to happen with North Korea. Do you see President Trump being able to make any progress? You know, there are sort of pluses and minuses with, uh, with President Trump. On the one hand, it may be an advantage that he comes into this without knowing, you know, without being steeped in the history the way a lot of people are. Because I think it may be easier to see the current situation and what needs to be done without looking at all the history. So that might be something on the, on the good side. He's actually said you know, some positive things about wanting to sit down and talk, although he's been somewhat inconsistent about that. Uh, my biggest concern is that you know, if you try to bluster and you try and threaten Kim Jong-un, it's not going to work because Kim Jong-un is very, very good at that himself. And so we'll see what happens. One thing I've been quite pleased to see is that there's a tendency on negotiations to say, well, if we just negotiate about the nuclear program, that leaves all these other problems with North Korea that we worry about. And so we can't somehow just talk about one small piece. We somehow need to talk about everything. But you can't solve everything. And so I was pleased to see that um, Secretary of State Tillerson recently explicitly addressed that by saying, you know, we, we want to try and solve this problem. We're not looking at regime change. We're not, you know, trying to undermine the country. And it seems to me that's the right strategy to take in trying to move forward. And the fact that Trump is, is talking to China, I mean, I think, as I said, China and the United States have a very different sense of what needs to be done to sort of normalize relations with North Korea. H having said that, uh, China is the biggest trading partner at this point with North Korea and can you know, put on pressure to some extent that might help sanctions and help get them to the table. So, How about Dennis Rodman? Anything he can do? Well, there's a lot of jokes about Dennis Rodman. You know, I think that um, people were sort of shocked by that, that somebody could just go over and talk to this person that, you know, he's actually a real person. And I think part of what it did was it sort of brought out that 
basketball-loving kid who grew up in Switzerland. And, you know, so I actually was a big fan of Rodman going over there and trying to, you know, extend a hand. And we'll see. Do you think people understand the uniquely destructive power of nuclear weapons? It doesn't seem like people are as worried as they used to be. I think that's right. I mean, it's not something that people typically hear about. I think there's a, you know, people that we talk to who used to follow this have a sense that after the end of the Cold War, the United States and Soviet Union and Russia eventually got rid of their weapons. They're surprised to hear that there are still large arsenals around, that they're continually kept on hair-trigger alert. So I don't quite know how you get people to realize this is an issue that you need to solve. How many nuclear weapons and missiles do they need? One, two, ten? One of the age-old questions with nuclear weapons is uh, how many is enough? And it depends a lot on what you want to do with them. If all they really wanted to do was to tell the outside world, we have this capability, you know we have this capability, and if you try to attack, you don't know what we'll do with this. When Israel first developed its nuclear weapons because it was worried about Soviet attack, um, it did not at that point have a way to deliver them, but it apparently, according to the histories, uh, sent a message to Moscow basically saying, you know we have nuclear weapons, and if you attack us, we will get one to Moscow and blow it up. And that apparently was a very successful threat. Uh, Moscow believed it. So, you know, in that sense, it doesn't take very many. On the other hand, as you get people who start thinking about what you would do with them, how you would deploy them, how much certainty you want, all of a sudden you start getting this machinery that says, well, you know, you can't just have one, you really need to have this many, and then you should have a backup for those. And, you know, that's how the United States and Soviet Union got up to having more than 70,000 nuclear weapons in the mid-1980s. Are missiles used solely for weapons? There's a sort of what people call a dual-use problem with rocket technology. On the one hand, you can use it for ballistic missiles to deliver weapons, uh, but it's also largely the same technology used to put satellites in orbit. Uh -huh. And so uh, one of the things that North Korea had been doing was uh, using its development of rocket technology to build a satellite launcher, and has actually launched two small satellites into orbit. Iran, interestingly enough, is doing the same thing. It's uh, put a couple satellites in orbit, and it's a way to get experience with some of the same kinds of issues you have with ballistic missiles, but, you know, it's something that people see as sort of a right of countries to do, which is to have an ability to put satellites in orbit. Mm -hmm. And so that's one of the things that I think will have to get worked out. If there's a, a limit on North Korea's development of ballistic missiles, you're going to have to figure out some way to do something about its space launch program as well. And we've looked at that in the past. One idea is to, you know, that part of what would be in the negotiating table would be that the international community would launch satellites for North Korea, so it would provide launch services. Uh, you could imagine there could also be a collaboration with the West in terms of building communications and satellites and things like that that would be very useful for North Korea's um, development. So we've looked at things like that that I think could be a, a, the kind of thing that would be useful in the negotiating table. But if North Korea digs its heels in and says, we want to be able to build our own satellite launchers, uh, that's going to be a real problem trying to figure out how to do that with a ban on ballistic missiles. So you've been working on nuclear weapons, missile defense, and nuclear proliferation for a couple of decades now. Lots of ups and lots of downs. How do you kick back and have fun? <laughs> uh, well, I used to love to play a lot of tennis. Uh, that's harder now that I'm getting older, so I do a lot of biking. 
Um, I like to dig in the garden. I like to listen to music. Just something that has no fizzle material involved. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you for uh, joining us, David. This is great. I would definitely like to invite you back at some point because I think there will be lots of developments. I'd love to do it. And now, it's time for a short segment we call Sidelining Science, the latest weird news from an administration that needs to get busy posting more help-wanted ads for scientists. Our correspondent, Shreya Dervasala, has the story. In a normal U.S. presidential administration, 46 scientists are usually appointed by the federal government to serve across agencies and as advisors to the president. In this one, President Trump has nominated only seven people to fill these key scientific positions. That's a lot of empty offices. Why do I need scientists, the president might be asking himself. Well, science advisors come in handy during public health crises, like Zika or an oil spill, or if you want a space program like NASA, which has no administrator as of this recording. And when tunnels full of radioactive waste collapse in Washington state, it's helpful to be able to ask scientists within the Department of Energy what the best course of action would be. Oh, by the way, that last one happened. There were no serious consequences, but had there been, the department wouldn't have been ready. It still isn't ready because it's still understaffed. Positions are empty across agencies, from the Environmental Protection Agency to the Department of Defense to the Department of Homeland Security. Perhaps the most important one that's still unfilled is the Presidential Science Advisor, who runs the Office of Science and Technology Policy. By the way, that's not normal. Presidents Obama and Bush had their science positions mostly filled by now. Rush Holt is the chief executive of the American Association for the Advancement of Science. He says, when a crisis occurs, that's too late to get up to speed. You want people who are up to speed before the crisis occurs. Refusing to nominate qualified, credentialed scientists where they're desperately needed is not good governance. We call it sidelining science. That's it for this episode of Got Science. Our next episode airs on July 4th. I thought this would be a good time to bring back Ken Kimmel, president of UCS, to give us his thoughts about what's been going on since I spoke with Ken on our first episode back in February. Special thanks to Dr. David Wright, our very own rocket scientist. Our sidelining science correspondent is Shreya Dervasala. Engineering and music by Brian Middleton. Research and writing by Pamela Worth. Our executive producer is Rich Hayes, and I'm your host, Colleen McDonald. See you next time.